There's a lot of external pressure that comes sometimes, but I think I grew up in a household that really nurtured that ambition. It gave me the mindset of, if not me, it's gonna be someone else, so why not me? Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. This season, we're focusing on ambition and sharing stories of creative, curious people who are changing the world. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Kayla Castaneda, CEO and co-founder of Agua Bonita. Her holistic approach to the business drew early support from venture capitalists and has driven success very quickly. Kayla shares her advice for founders and the vision for Agua Bonita to be the leading better-for-you beverage. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So Kayla, thank you very much for joining us on our Women on the Move podcast. It is great to have you on. Thanks so much. I'm really excited to chat with you today. So we're going to talk a lot about your business, Agua Bonita, but I would love to first talk with you about your upbringing because it really plays a big part of the story behind the business. So can you tell us about your upbringing, where you grew up, and how that influenced you to start the company? Sure. So I grew up in a small town called Hanford. It's in the Central Valley of California. This region is very agriculture heavy. I grew up seeing lots of fruit, lots of different crops. And actually, my family was a family of migrant farm workers, which is the case for many, many families in this region. My grandpa, who was a migrant farm worker, he would bring home fruit from the fields after work and make aguas frescas for us. And when you were growing up with that kind of influence, did you ever think it would lead to something business-wise for you? I did not. And it's one of those moments when you have the idea that it feels like it's been there all along. And how could I not see it? But I can confidently say 20 years ago, I didn't think that I would be making aguas frescas. I did always think I'd have my own company, but I just didn't know what it would be. So tell us about spending that time with your grandfather. What was that like? What are the memories that you have? And what were those family rituals all about? Sure. I think like many multi-generational, especially Hispanic households, we get to spend a ton of time with our grandparents. So my grandpa used to pick me up from school. Actually, I just met with my fourth grade teacher yesterday, and she was speaking about how much she remembered my grandpa being really active in my life. He was a part of everything. He would go to all of our games. He would help make dinner. And so a lot of the things that he enjoyed doing, having a small garden and not letting anything go to waste, having these cultural elements present in the home are just things that carried on into my adulthood. So tell us about your career journey up until you started the company. What were you focused on originally? Where did you think you would take your career? Grew up in a really small town, so I wanted something entirely different. And as soon as I graduated from high school, I moved to New York City. I worked in food and beverage there, really liked it. But then I got into a sales and marketing position with Major League Baseball. So I actually thought that I would work in professional sports. But I always found myself on the food and beverage side of the business, the concession stands and the events. And there's such a food culture that goes along with professional sports. As things evolved, I found myself wanting to work with affiliates a little bit more. And one of the biggest partners to Major League Baseball is Coca-Cola. And so I ended up working with Coca-Cola that brought me back to California. That's really kind of what set things in motion from then on out. 
Well, wearing a Coca-Cola seems to be the perfect way for you to get into the beverage business for sure. What were the things you learned from that experience that you use today in your own company? A lot of things. When I was at Coca-Cola, I was the youngest person in my position. So I think I had a different perspective than a lot of my coworkers and colleagues. And I use that now in our business. Just because something has been done the same way for lots and lots of years, that might not be the most innovative approach now. So I'd say that's something that I carry on into our business. And then also basic business fundamentals like margins and understanding the distribution system, things that I was able to get a firsthand look at from working for a huge corporation. So tell us about the origin story for Agua Bonita. How did it come about? What was that aha moment where you said, I have to start this business and this is what it's going to be about? I had left Coca-Cola because I wanted to make a bigger impact And I thought that I could do that better as a consultant for food and beverage companies. So I was consulting for a while. Then the pandemic came into town and I found myself with a lot of time on my hands. My mother-in-law was home from Mexico and she was making us aguas frescas almost every day. And that was the light bulb moment where it was like, oh, this is something that has been around in my family and in our culture forever. So why am I not doing something like this? And why is this not commercially available? I kid you not, within a week, the entire business idea was flushed out because we like to say when life gives you lemons, make aguas frescas because it was just right there in front of me the entire time. And it just also hit everything that I knew that consumers were looking for these days with making lower sugar options and this cultural offering and getting to create something that's a reflection of myself and my family and my culture and put it on shelf. Tell us about the uniqueness of the product. So as you mentioned, people are looking for certain things now that I guess they're just not finding out in the market. So how were you able to really define a very distinctive space? Sure. I think a big defining characteristic for us is the flavor profiles that we put out. So we make a couple of spicy drinks, jalapenos, habaneros, tajin, instead of ginger, which is typically used as like a spicy thing. So I think our flavor profiles really set us apart. And then our packaging, we use a lot of fun packaging that's inspired by our culture and put it on shelf as a work of art. It's the bonita part of Agua Bonita. Tell us about all the company's products. Tell us about all the different things you're offering today, the different flavors, and how you develop this line to start with. Agua Bonita makes modern aguas frescas, so 80% less sugar, but still 100% of the flavor. Aguas frescas are a traditional Mexican drink made by blending non-sparkling water, fresh fruit, and typically a lot of sugar, which we do not do. So right now, our current offerings range from some more traditional ones like hibiscus and pineapple and sweet melon to some more fun and modern takes on these drinks like mango habanero and watermelon chile and some really cool new innovations coming soon. It sounds amazing. I mean, all the flavors sound so good. Where can people find the drinks? Do you distribute nationally now or are you more based in California? 
Yeah, we just got our first national retailer with Whole Foods Market. So you'll be able to find us in Whole Foods all across the U.S. Then if you're in California, you can also find us in most of the Targets here in select 7-Elevens in different parts of the country, California, Texas. So we've grown a lot. We've grown from initially 50 retailers to now almost 2,000. That is unbelievable in such a short period of time. What do you think it was about the product or what was it about your approach to distribution that really worked so quickly? I think it was just because we were truly a positive value add to the offerings because no one else was doing aguas frescas. And so we had a large consumer set that inherently understood what aguas frescas are. So we didn't have to drum up the demand because it already existed. And then there were consumers that were just so interested in what we were offering that they wanted to try us out and ended up sticking with us. So I think that has helped us drive distribution conversations a lot quicker than we anticipated, really. And who are the consumers? Are they consumers that have had this kind of drink before or not necessarily, and they're really being introduced to this for the first time? It's split about 60-40, I would say, and that also mirrors the ethnic backgrounds of our consumers, about 60% Latino or Hispanic who have a familiarity with the drink, but then 40% from other ethnic backgrounds who are just interested in trying something with a global flavor and trying something new. I always joke, tacos are for everyone, right? Taco Tuesday, everyone loves that. And aguas frescas have that same sort of appeal, no matter your background. So it's so interesting to hear about how you really took off during the pandemic. We've obviously heard of many businesses having the reverse kind of experience, which is very difficult, or they shut down during the pandemic. Tell us about how you made it through such a challenging time. It seemed like you had the time, as you said, to think about it, and the idea was born, which is unbelievable. But how did you actually develop the product, pull together operations and your team all during such a difficult time for most businesses and people? The way that I approached building a business mid-pandemic was with the thought that a lot of things for a lot of people are not working out. So if it doesn't work out for us too, that's okay because we'll be on the same playing field as anyone else. But let's use this time constructively and see what the resources are. We got to take our time with things a little bit more because the pace of life was a little slower. Honestly, it was just a couple of us working on it at the beginning. So the operations and the branding, it was very DIY and in-house, but we had the time to focus on it. So I would say it was very bootstrapped and very validating the product market fit for that good chunk of time at the beginning. And then once the world started opening up a little bit more is when we got to start to scale operations a bit. And I think people during the pandemic were willing to help us because they were a little bored too (laughs) and wanted to do something. And our product was different than stuff that they had done before. We got a lot of people just interested in helping us because they wanted something to do with their time too. That is really so good to hear. Were you able to reach people to test the products? And if so, how did you do that in a COVID-friendly way? We started entirely online, direct to consumer. So we were just shipping things. Everyone was buying groceries online at that time too. So it really fit in. And we sent out a lot of samples with the intention of getting feedback and getting in front of people and just seeing how things would go and then tinkering and iterating from there. So part of the proceeds from the company go back to migrant workers. 
Tell us why that's so important to you. You mentioned it being a big part of your family and your upbringing, but tell us about this full circle concept. I'm so grateful that I'm the first generation in my family that has not had to pick in the fields. I'm very proud of our origin and what the generations before me did to allow that. So I can also see firsthand how financial support can really change the trajectory of future generations. So we work with nonprofit partners like Justice for Migrant Women that help current migrant farm workers in a variety of ways. And I think think that for us, it's just really important because it's a nod to where things started for us and being able to invest in communities that do essential work, but that are not provided essential services. I think that's so powerful. And I would imagine it's such a great mission for the brand in terms of conveying that to consumers and having people really understand the values behind the company and what they can do as consumers to support you. Do you hear that from folks who are interacting with your brand in these early days? I think a lot of people that are big fans of our brand are big fans because my story is their story too. They have a very similar background or their family's origins are very similar. And so I think it's just something that a lot of people can relate to. And even if they can't relate to it, they can recognize the importance of supporting. It's been really well received. I'm curious, is your family involved in the business in any way? Yeah, we have the three-year-olds packing boxes, especially when we started because everything was just all over my house all the time. And we've outsourced a lot now, but my brother works on the brand. One of my Theos works on the brand. So it's a lot of family influence. And my mom helps with every single thing. She's like our biggest unpaid intern, I would say, our only unpaid intern. (laughs) Kayla, I'd love to talk about the concept of sustainability and what that means to you and the brand. Can you tell us what you do in order to be sustainable and why it's important to you to run the business this way this early? One aspect of our sustainability story is the idea of using as much upcycled fruit as we can. Upcycled fruit is perfectly fine fruit that just was grown in excess that season or didn't make it to the store for cosmetic reasons. And we intervene to use that fruit as much as possible in our drinks instead of letting it go to waste. And then another part of our sustainability story is our packaging. So even though we are a non-sparkling drink, we use aluminum cans for our drinks. And that's because aluminum is infinitely recyclable, but also the most likely to get recycled. And so those two aspects have been challenging at times, especially with supply chain shortages and as you scale operations. But we knew that if we could incorporate them early on and dedicate resources to figuring that out, that it would get easier as we grew. When it comes to upcycling fruit, tell our listeners something they might not know, whether that's, is there a particular kind of fruit that most goes to waste that only shows up in the supermarkets when it's absolutely perfect, but there's so much of it that's grown otherwise? What should listeners be aware of when it comes to that? A lot of citrus. There's a lot of lemons, limes, oranges that just has a lot of waste. And for us, we're always able to use citrus in our drinks because acidity and getting the right pH level is actually incredibly important to creating a shelf-stable product. But I don't think that there's any one produce that shows up more often than not in grocery stores. Crops are so variable year to year that it just sort of depends on how the weather was that year. 
Do you use seasonal produce to make special drinks or are you going to try to develop a more consistent product line right now? It depends on the scale that we achieve because the larger company we are, the more feasible it is to have seasonal releases. Right now, we're more focused on having a dedicated lineup that we can give to people and incorporating as much upcycled fruit as we can. We can't always be 100% upcycled, but we can try our best to step in where we can. So Kayla, in recognition of all your work and achievements to date, Ford cited you on their 30 under 30 list for food and beverage. So first of all, congratulations on that. How did that make you feel when you were named to that? The Forbes 30 under 30 recognition was a life goal of mine. And so it felt amazing. I had landed from a flight. I turned on my phone, flooded with congratulations, and I didn't even know what it was for. And then I realized that it was for making the Forbes list. And so it meant so much to me because the caliber of recognition that it is and understanding that the family background that I came from, a lot of people don't even in my family don't even know what Forbes is. And so just to achieve something that wasn't even in the realm of reality for so many of my generations was very important and very meaningful for me. But I also think that getting that recognition, there's been some online conversations around people pay to be on the Forbes list or kind of being Debbie Downers about the Forbes recognitions. Also, it was like a humbling lesson in that sometimes no matter what you achieve and how great it is and how great you think it is, there's still some people out there that might not think it's so great. And I think that that's how business is sometimes is you just have to kind of keep going and even have the confidence in your wins and be able to take the blows in stride because they're always going to be there even when you accomplish something amazing. So the company is certified by the Women's Business Enterprise National Council and WeBank, as it's known, is a partner of ours here at JPMorgan Chase. I'm curious, why was it important to you to be certified? It's incredibly important for us because there are not many woman-owned companies in this industry in general. I made the Forbes list for being the first Latina-led company and founder to raise more than a million dollars in our industry. So that just goes to show the shortage of female founders that are scaling up companies like ours. And so to have that certification is just an outward signal to people that it is women that are leading the ship here. We're very proud of that. And because of that, our hiring practices are different. The way that we go about our business in terms of distributor relationships and material supplier relationships is different. Our branding And everything is different because of that. We're marketing to people like us, other women. We talk to a lot of women who aren't certified as women-owned businesses, and we encourage them to be that way. We do that with other diverse suppliers that we work with. Can you talk to entrepreneurs that might wonder, is it too difficult to get certified or what's the benefits of being certified so that more people, more women in particular, really go for this? It is a bit difficult to get your certification, 
requires just having a lot of paperwork handy. Definitely want to carve out some time to dedicate to getting it all together and being able to submit it timely. But once you're past that initial certification, the benefits purely from a business standpoint are worthwhile. There's a lot of programs that you can take advantage of by being a certified woman-owned business. There's a lot of financial breaks that you can get with certain retailers because of their pledges towards supporting women and minority-owned businesses. It just changes things even from a PL standpoint. So I think if there's nothing else of all the great things to motivate you to get certified, the financial benefits of it should be something that you take into consideration. Thank you for that. That's really helpful. I'm also wondering about your financing journey, your experience with raising funds for the business. Can you talk about that? How are you successful in doing that? It is so hard for women founders, particularly women of color founders, to be successful in raising VC. So I'm wondering how you did that. What was your approach and what did you experience along the way? VC and raising money is an entire world of its own. And it was really difficult for me to understand how it worked because I didn't have that background. It took a lot of Googling, a lot of talking to other people that had raised money, and really just getting our story and our pitch down. At the beginning, when I was still bootstrapping the business, I did a lot of pitch competitions, and that is how we initially bootstrapped the business. But those platforms gave me the opportunity to get our pitch down. And once we kind of had the mechanics of it figured out, I didn't have to worry so much about the pitch because I knew I could pitch the business. And so I think it's kind of twofold. You're going to have to look for resources and maybe accelerator programs and things like that to understand the mechanics of it. But if you can get your pitch down, I mean, that's something that you can do just by practicing on your own. It's so great that you took advantage of all of these programs and found that they were really helpful to you. What was the message that really resonated out there when you got that pitch down? What did you say to convince people to fund the company? It was just that we were offering something new. It wasn't that it just tastes good and is better for you. It's also that it's good for the planet and good for people and our communities. And so I think that holistic approach really helped us connect with people and get that early support. From a fundraising side, I remember one message that I received that resonated with me the most was I was speaking to venture capitalists through an accelerator program. And I was like, I don't understand all of these things. And his response was, it's not your job to understand these things. It's my job as a venture capitalist to understand these things. It's your job to know how to run your business and know how to sell your product. And that moment changed the way that I looked at everything. That's such a powerful moment. I think so many other people might say it is your responsibility to do that. It's great that that person actually said it wasn't. I could see how that would take a lot of that burden off of you from that perspective. And when you look ahead, let's say three to five years or even longer, what are your goals for the company? Where would you like to be, whether that's with different products or bigger in distribution, sales, of course, what does your ultimate dream look like? The ultimate dream for Agua Bonita is to be the leading, better for you, Hispanic beverage brand. I think that there is a lot of opportunity in this space and there's different product iterations that we would love to come out with. And we want our brand to be synonymous with that better for you and feel good type of energy that I think we bring now. 
can't wait to see everything that you do on that front. So it's terrific. Let's switch gears and talk about ambition. We talk to a lot of women on this podcast about that. And we really start with the question of, do you consider yourself ambitious? And if so, what are your ambitions for? I do consider myself ambitious. Actually, I mentioned earlier, I just met with my fourth grade teacher yesterday. And the reason why I was meeting with her is because I asked my mom, have I always been this ambitious? And her answer was yes. And there's been teachers along the way that have helped you with that. And one of them was my fourth grade teacher. So I think I've just always been ambitious. And that ambition really stems from my family. No one has ever capped my dreams or told me that I could not do something internally. There's a lot of external pressure that comes sometimes, but I think I grew up in a household that really nurtured that ambition. It gave me the mindset of, if not me, it's going to be someone else. So why not me? So take us to that conversation you have with your fourth grade teacher. Did your teacher share something with you that you did in the fourth grade that you don't remember, but that really conveyed you were an ambitious kid? She wasn't surprised with where I'm at now because she just knew from very early on that the priorities that I had compared to some of my classmates just were not the same. I got in trouble once in her class it was like we had to pull a card. It was just like this yeah, system. And I told her that I remembered pulling the card. And she actually told me that she remembered having to make me pull the card because if she didn't, then everyone would be like, oh, well, she's your favorite and like, you know, things like that. And she was just like, you were, but the equal opportunity, <laughs> I think that just kind of made me feel good about sometimes having different priorities than my friends and my family even now. Because being a founder is not for the faint of heart and it comes with a lot of hardships and a lot of things that you sometimes miss out on or delay because of what you're working towards. It made me feel better about some of those decisions that I had made. That's great that she could see so early on that you were destined for great things. And now she can admit that you were her favorite. So let me ask you this. What's the best piece of advice you've received, whether that's for your career, your business in general? the general reiteration that it's all going to be okay. I think sometimes we can get tunnel vision and there's a lot of things that you're juggling when you're trying to get a company off the ground and the wins are really high, but sometimes the, the losses can be really low. And I think just having people around me to remind me that it's all going to be okay, whether it works out or whether it doesn't, it's all going to be okay. It's sometimes just like that humbling thing that I need to hear to be able to get on with my day. And how do you tell other people to keep going when they're questioning themselves or feel stuck? The way that I encourage other people is to make sure that they're feeling fulfilled in other areas of their life because I don't think that you can pour from an empty cup. And so that is how I encourage people to keep going with things is that there are other things that you find joy in than just this one thing. So don't let this one thing eclipse everything else. Thank you so much, Kayla. It is such a pleasure to speak with you and hear about your experiences. I'm really excited to see how the company grows and I will definitely be going to Whole Foods so I can buy some of your drinks. What flavor is your favorite? Just tell me that. I don't know. It's like picking a favorite child. Probably have one in my head, but you don't ever want to admit it. <laughs> all right. I'll have to try them all. It's such a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much.
Thank you for listening to my conversation with Kayla Castaneda. I love how she's built her business with culture as the foundation and how she considers sustainability every step of the way. Her Forbes 30 under 30 recognition is well-deserved and I'm excited to see where she takes Agua Bonita. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. To learn more about Women on the Move and listen to the full library of this podcast, please visit jpmorganchase.com slash W-O-T-M. For JPMorgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.